satisfaction, which is clinging attachment. And I'd like to start off by just saying a little bit about the, the Buddha. The sun is right in my eyes. I wonder if anything... Oh, yeah, no, just this side. Yeah, I'm blinded here. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> the Buddha was born about 2,500 years ago in... India, the border of India and Nepal. He was born as a young prince, and he married quite young to a beautiful and devoted wife. But he lived a very, very sheltered existence. He lived in the luxury of the palace, and he wasn't allowed to go out because his father didn't want him to see what was going on in the world. So he was sheltered in the palace by the king, but he got very curious about what was going outside, going on outside the walls of the palace. So he asked one of the attendants to take him into town. And while he was being driven around, it is said that he saw four heavenly messengers. But we might say that they were four earthly messengers because they were very earthly indeed. The first he saw was an old person. He had never seen an aging person before. He was protected of this in the palace. He had only seen the young and the beautiful. But you can imagine what impact this had on him when he saw this old person, this person with wrinkles and aging. The second person that he saw was a sick person, a diseased person. And this, again, he had never seen. The third was a corpse, a dead person. And he asked his attendant, he said, What is this? Does this happen to everyone? And his attendant said, Yes, everyone who takes birth dies. And this awakened an urgency, an inquiry in the Buddha, because he wanted to know about these things about old age, sickness, and death. And the fourth heavenly messenger was a recluse, a renunciate, someone he saw along the road who was on a spiritual journey. And this was really his symbol for a call to his destiny because he wanted to find out, he wanted to leave the palace and find out what this life was about. So he left the palace at 29 years old, and for six years he was wandering, meeting teacher after teacher, studying and following their systems, their methods, and very rigorous ascetic practices, but he realized that none of these really worked. He was not satisfied with any of the teachings that he received. So he abandoned everything and he went his own way. And then one night, as you probably all know, he sat under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India, with the resolve not to get up until he understood the true nature of things. And at that time, at that moment, he understood the highest wisdom. 
He was 35 years old, and for the next 45 years he taught what he understood. And this is essentially in the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the essence of his teachings. The first truth is that there is suffering in life, that there is dissatisfaction, that life can be quite unsatisfactory. Actually, the first time I heard this, I felt quite relieved because I realized that I wasn't the only one suffering, (laughs) that it wasn't something, it wasn't my fault in a way, but that in being in a human body, being in having had a human birth, that there is suffering in this life. The second noble truth is the cause of this dissatisfaction, this suffering, and that is clinging or attachment, holding on. The third noble truth is the truth of the end of this suffering, the truth of nirvana, or the unconditioned, that we can be free of this pain, of this suffering. And the fourth noble truth was the Buddha laying out the way, which is called the Eightfold Noble Path. I want to talk about the second of these truths because in this last, these last few years it has become so profound, such a profound teaching to me, the truth of this, of this, this movement towards wanting something to happen in a particular way and clinging on to that result that brings pain, that brings suffering that in every moment that we're feeling dissatisfaction, there's clinging, there's holding. And I want to clarify in the beginning that there can be a wanting without the clinging. There can be wanting for something to be different. And that's not what causes causes dissatisfaction. It's the clinging after the result. It's not being able to let go of that result happening. Wanting is a natural part of the human condition. Wanting to eat, wanting to sleep, wanting connection with people, wanting to walk, wanting to move the body, wanting to know something. But it's the clinging on to the result that brings the dissatisfaction. The Buddha identified four great attachments. The first is the attachment of sense pleasures. That is seeking pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, that which we're all familiar with. (laughs) All the pleasant sensations of the body. And there can be this endless seeking after these momentary pleasures. And we're attracted to them as if they will solve our problems, as if they will bring an end to the pain. We 
there's this tendency to seek after these sense pleasures so that we can feel this momentary happiness. But the problem is that it doesn't work. Maybe there's a moment of pleasure or a few moments of pleasure and then it passes away. How many pleasant experiences have we already had? And has it brought any lasting fulfillment? Has that been the answer? The nature of the sense pleasures is that they arise and they pass. All the sense pleasures, a moment of a beautiful sight, an agreeable smell or taste, just comes and then it goes. The thing is, we're looking for happiness in the wrong place. There's a story of Nasruddin, who is a crazy Sufi master. And maybe you've heard this one, but uh, Nasruddin lost his key. And he was looking for it under the lamp outside his house at night. And somebody came over and said, Nasruddin, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've lost my key. And he said, well, where have you lost it? I said, well, in the house. Well, then why are you looking for it out here? There's more light out here. (laughs) You know, it's like we're looking in the wrong place for our happiness. And this is an endlessly frustrating situation because it just won't work. We can enjoy these momentary sense pleasure. There's no problem with the enjoyment, with the pleasure that comes from being in this human body at times. But it's the clinging, it's the running after, thinking that it's going to bring us some fulfillment that is the problem. I'm going to say more about this later. The second of the four great attachments The first being sense pleasures. The second is attachment to our own opinions and views about things. I think we can all relate to this. (laughs) Attachment to views on politics, on religion, on diets, on any theories that we have about about things. People kill one another because of their views about things. Look at the chaos in the world today. It's all because of people's attachments to views and opinions about what's right and what's wrong. And these views and opinions, this attachment, the clinging on to these views and opinions keeps us from seeing how things actually are. They become filters through which we perceive reality. So we can't really see the truth. We're so caught up in our own opinions or views about things that it prevents us from this true seeing. A time after, when he was asked the greatest hindrance his students had, he said, Opinions, views, and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. It is like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions. Then you will see. 
So attachment to sense pleasures, attachment to views and opinions. The third is attachment to rites and rituals. And what is meant by this, basically, is anything that includes spiritual materialism. Practices or rituals that we do to make ourselves feel better. We call this spiritual materialism. Even attachment to meditation practice is a hindrance, is an obstacle to clear seeing. Any kind of spiritual self-righteousness, I'm a good person because I do these practices, I do these rituals. And especially in certain traditions like um, uh, Tibetan practices where they have a great deal of ritual in their practices, or Zen, they have to really look to see if there's clinging on to thinking that those practices are going to take them somewhere, if they're actually going to create some betterment in some way. It has to be looked at very carefully. Any of the spiritual materialism can be a hindrance to seeing clearly. The fourth great attachment is probably the greatest. And this is the belief in the concept of self, the concept of I, I as an individual solid entity over here. And this might be the hardest one to let go of of, of all. There is the belief that there is some permanent entity in the mind, in the body, which is experiencing all this. Some, some solid entity over here, which is the experiencer of all this. An entity which is separate from the process itself. We create the idea that someone's here, and then our whole life revolves around protecting it, protecting this body, defending this body, gratifying this body and mind. And it's all evolving around a concept that's simply not true. We think we are a solid, separate self. But when we stop, as we're doing here, and we look, this can become more subtle. And we can see that maybe there isn't something solid over here, but maybe this passing show of experiences. There's five senses, seeing, tasting, smelling, hearing, touching, and thought arising very rapidly in rapid succession. Sight, hearing, tasting, sound, touching, sensation, thinking, just all happening very rapidly. But we get caught in thinking it's solid because the process is happening so quickly. And then this gives us an illusion of solidity. It's like if you take a a stick of fire and you whirl it around, move it very fast, it looks like it's a solid circle. But it's not. It's just that the fire is moving, whirling very rapidly. There's nothing solid there in the circle. Or like a film in a movie, 
if you stop the the moon the film, it's just it's just a strip of film. But when it plays, it gives the illusion of movement. But it happens very, very quickly, so we think that it's solid. But when we're still and quiet, we slow down the process, we can see this rapidity of changes taking place. And we have to start questioning whether things are so solid. What's really going on? Instead of being deluded into a solid concept of me, I, self, we can see what's actually happening, that there's these momentary experiencing experiences rising and passing out of a great void, rising out of vastness and returning to vastness. There's no one behind it. And, and sensing this, knowing this, creates a radical shift in one's perception. We see there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing we can possibly hold on to. But we hold on because we don't see clearly. We're deluded into thinking that things are solid. So the four great attachments You've observed here that moments can be very difficult. And maybe this difficulty is what brings a lot of people here, wanting some relief from this, wanting some some change in this difficult process. I know when I started this meditation, it was about about 15 years ago and I was just about to have a nervous breakdown I was about 27 years old and life was terrible (laughs) and I was looking for some relief from this and so someone suggested that I started meditating at that time there was very very little in the way that I wanted life to be. And I really had the sense that if I could change the external conditions, then I'd be happy. It really seemed true that if I could just change things around me, I would be happier. But I think this assumption is what got me into the predicament in the first place. (laughs) Because there's a continual striving to want to change things very little ability to accept what was happening. I really thought that if I got married, I'd be happy. (laughs) That was the first mistake. (laughs) Not putting anything down about being married. (laughs) That didn't work for me. (laughs) I thought that if I would move from the city that I was in to this other city, that I'd be happy that that would actually help the marriage. If we just moved to this other city, I'd be happy. But that didn't really work either. Then I thought, well, we were living with his parents, so then I thought, well, if we could get our own place, then I'd be happy. 
but that didn't work either. <laughs> and it was like each thing that I tried, I was still left with this sense of restlessness, of dissatisfaction. So through the meditation, with the meditation, I started looking within. I thought, well, maybe I need, instead of looking outward all the time, maybe I need to look inward. So that seemed to make a difference because I saw this assumption that if I can change the external conditions, then I'd be happy. I saw that that's what keeps us moving seeking, searching for some fulfillment that isn't possible to get from things outside of ourselves. The thoughts arise in the mind that say, I believe having that particular object or event happen will bring me some fulfillment or lasting fulfillment. I think that that's usually what the thought is, that will bring me lasting fulfillment. For example, some kind of object, if I can get this car, or this piece of cake, or this silk blouse, or this drug, or this drink of alcohol, or something, if I can just get that, or the situation set up, if I can get a particular job, or being in a certain relationship, or if I could just have this holiday or this vacation, or it might be something for one's self-image, if I could just get myself to be more relaxed, or if I could get this particular mind state to go away, this way that I'm, I'm feeling angry and irritated, if I could just get that to stop, or if I could just get this pain in the body to go away, then I'd be happy. I mean, have you noticed this tendency in the mind? If I could just get this, then everything will be okay. If I could just, if this would happen, then I'd be all right. If this person would stop making so much noise, then I could feel happy. I mean, little things, how it just arises, probably so much during the day. And I label this the wanting mind, the mind that thinks that having that result will make everything okay, clinging on to that result. Wanting one thing usually negates what we already have, Many of us think that that thing or situation or way of being will be better than what, what I have, what we have right now. And this thought itself, if I believe this to be true, brings a feeling of dissatisfaction. If I just think this, there will be the dissatisfaction, the agitation, right here and now. And then this agitation reinforces the belief that what I have is not enough. Because I have this agitation, so that here's proof that it's not okay because I'm feeling so agitated. I don't seem to feel calm or satisfied, so something's wrong. Something's wrong with me, something's wrong with my life. And then I need to do something, which I think will make the agitation go away or make me feel better. And then the doer is born. This idea that I have to do something gives birth to that, that idea of doing. And if I'm successful at achieving the desired result, I will most likely feel a sense of peace and satisfaction and contentment. And then this will reinforce that that thing has brought me some relief. But 
we haven't gone far enough, we haven't looked far enough. Because the funny thing, the ironical thing, is that the reason for this calm feeling is because since I got that thing that I thought would bring me happiness, because that I got it, the desire for it has ended. And therefore the agitation has stopped. The desire has gone away. It's not getting the object, but that desire, that wanting, that clinging has stopped. That's what brought the agitation. If the satisfaction was in the attainment of the object, the desire would not start up again. But it does. It comes back. Until I see through the assumption once and for all, that assumption that something out there is going to bring me happiness or something in here is going to bring me happiness, some change of my mind state or my feeling or my mood. Since the satisfaction we're looking for cannot be found outside of ourselves, a new restlessness settles in, followed by a new desire and an action to seek that result. And this is the wheel of samsara, if you've heard this term, the wheel of samsara, the wheel of, of birth and death. It just keeps us going around and around and around and around, seeking and then feeling satisfied, then feeling restless and then seeking and then feeling satisfied, and then the desire coming back, the restlessness coming back, and then seeking. Just go around and around and around. seems that what all this movement is for is just to get rid of the agitation, the restlessness. The mind attaches a value onto something that previously had no inherent value. That thing itself has no inherent value at all, but the mind attaches some value onto it. It isolates this one phenomenon, which is different for everybody, and believes that when I get that, I'll feel peace. But this belief only has truth because I believe it's true. It's a setup. It's only me putting value in that thing that has no inherent value. That's why one thing can have value for one person that has absolutely no value for another person. It's all made up in the mind. When we go after this result, what we do is we create an imaginary future based on ideas of the past, from this imaginary past and this imaginary future. Hold on to this idea from the past that something's going to bring us happiness in the future and all of time comes into creation. And we miss what's occurring right now right here and now. So, so it seems so much of what it's pointed to, to here is just this immersing ourselves 
in the totality of what's happening now, can we just immerse ourselves into this? The paradox, really, is that we can't be anywhere else than where we are right now. We just think we can. <laughs> we can imagine ourselves. We can, through our, the power of thought, we can project ourselves into the future. We have this wonderful power as human beings. We can create these imaginary pasts and future and then project project them and the thoughts become so real that we believe they're real. There's a real past and a real future. And we haven't gone anywhere. We're still sitting right here where we always were. Nothing's really changed. We're right here. We're still sitting in the theater watching the movie. Just the scenes change. The images change. But we haven't gone anywhere. Can anything ex- external to ourselves bring lasting happiness? All happiness from sense desire comes from the ending of desire, not from the thing itself. Happiness, true happiness, arises from the ending of wanting. It arises from emptiness. If you buy a car, that car has no, it has no chance to give inherent happiness. It's only iron and steel and rubber. (laughs) It doesn't have anything in it that's happy. metal and rubber and plastic and things. But the car comes (laughs) and then desire leaves. And then we think it was the car that brought us the happiness. But that nothingness or that emptiness in between that object, getting that object, and before the arising of the next desire is what brings happiness right in the middle. After the ending of one desire, before the arising of another desire, that feeling of just calmness, no agitation, no restlessness, no wanting. To realize there is nothing to hold on to that can offer lasting happiness shows us there is nothing to have. I mean, when you really know that we can't hold on to anything, then there's nothing to have. There's nothing to gain, nothing to accumulate, and therefore nothing special to be and nowhere to go. We're just right here. I call this objectless happiness. Objectless happiness. A happiness which is not dependent on any object, mood, 
mind state, a condition of any kind, unconditional happiness. So I think we come here to know this objectless happiness. I think this is what we're all wanting. (laughs) But this wanting for this happiness is not really wanting in the category at all that I've been talking about. Because this desire is the desire that will bring an end to all desire. This is the this is the only desire worth happen have, worth having. The desire which will bring the end to all desire. The desire to know this unconditional happiness that will bring us lasting peace and happiness. But you must know this right now because it can't be anywhere else but right here. Because if you think that it's not right here, you're going to be looking for a recipe to find it. And if I give you a recipe, or if I collude in that game of telling you how or showing you the way, it already implies that it's somewhere else. or it's something other than this. I'd like to end by reading a poem from Dante, Dante's Paradiso. Dante is talking to an angel. He says, But you who are so happy here, tell me, do you aspire to be a more to do you aspire to a more profound insight or a greater ecstasy? And she smiled a little, as did the shades behind her then answered with such gladness that her whole being seemed to glow with love's first fire. Brother, God's generosity itself calms our will and makes us want no more than what we have and long for nothing else. If we desired any greater bliss, we would not be in harmony with God, whose love assigns us to a lower place. The essence of this joy is that we all have we all have given up our personal desires so that our will is merged with God's own will. Therefore our rank in heaven from height to height is just as dear to each particular soul as to the one who appointed it. In God's will is our peace. It is the sea into which all currents and all streams empty themselves for all eternity. She says, if we desired any greater bliss, we would not be in harmony with God. 
Let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.